This is The Global Gambit. Life inherently consists of gambits. Be it individuals or countries, the ability to outmaneuver, navigate, strategize, or fate to get ahead is crucial and inevitable against the complexities, unpredictabilities, risks, and competition associated with life around the world. In the Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy, and current affairs, seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us, and question and critically analyze these matters. Each episode, your host, Pyotr Kurzin, who being English and Russian is a product of geopolitical events himself, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists, and policymakers. And do not forget to engage with us on social media, and if you appreciate the content, to support us at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit. Thank you very much for listening, and on to the show. This is The Global Gambit. Greetings and welcome back, uh, dear listeners and viewers, I should say. It's Piotr and this is The Global Gambit. And this time the gambit is going out of space, I guess you'd say. We are going to be talking about China, the United States and the what is uh, happening in the form of um, out geopolitics, but in space. So um, joining me today is a couple of great speakers. We've got uh, Professor Carla Freeman, uh, who focuses on China's foreign policy, security policy, uh, and she does a lot of uh, things related to, to space as well. Uh, and we've also got uh, Bruce McDonald, uh, who is uh, another member of SICE's uh, Advanced International School of Diplomacy, um, and has focused on things relating to nuclear non-proliferation, military space, and cybersecurity. These uh, terrific guests have uh, recently released a report uh, in tandem with the United States Institute of Peace, uh, which we've actually previously had on the um, uh, on the show before, China and strategical instability in space, pathways to peace in an era of U.S.-China strategical competition. Port will be in the show notes of this conversation, both podcast and YouTube. Um, but I think maybe to start off, uh, Professor Freeman, this has been a, a conversation I think we've wanted to have for a while. Uh, I was wondering if you could just broadly outline a little bit about the report, what 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 the objectives of it are, um, what inspired it, and um, and what you hope it can help to uh, you know uh, achieve in terms of U.S. policymaking. There we go. I uh, yes, there we go. Good. Uh, I uh, I Bruce and I can both share uh, the ins- inspiration for this report, but we're at a really critical juncture in the way that uh, countries use space. Uh, space is uh, becoming increasingly accessible by countries all over the world, not uh, just the United States or Russia, traditional uh, space powers. But of course, China is now a major player and many other countries are also joining the fray. And then we have billionaires too with their own space programs. So we suddenly have a space environment which is increasingly congested and technology uh, is uh, more and more uh, available and rapidly changing, giving uh, more and more players and uh, machines access to space. So this report uh, really responds to the, the, this, the fact that we're at a critical point in time where we need to do some work on space governance uh, to set some rules of the road in space. And there are many, many issues that we could have discussed, but we brought together an eminent group of experts to help us decide which uh, were some of the most urgent and also most actionable areas 
with a focus because uh, this report is for the U.S. Institute of Peace on space diplomacy uh, that we could address. And we came up with three key issues, uh, very, very different issues. But uh, one is uh, nuclear entanglement in space, which I'll let uh, let uh, Bruce, who's the expert on that, discuss a second is uh, the issue of direct ascent ASAT testing, which is a major source of debris in space with implications for how, the, how we use space. And the final issue that we chose to look at are mega constellations uh, like Starlink. Uh, the experts will say these are large and very large constellation satellites. Uh, these are, are regulated by the countries that send them up into space, uh, but uh, they are not regulated well globally. And so we have a situation where, where they are becoming the source of literally exponential uh, growth in the number of satellites out in space. So I'll stop there and turn it over to Bruce maybe for some follow up. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Bruce. If you just remember to unmute on your phone on Twitter, then please, um, what else would you like to add to? Um... And uh, then, uh, Carla did an excellent job of uh, starting us out. And by the way, there were just a uh, a number. Uh, the, these are the three most prominent issues of many others that have come about because of a, really a revolution in space technology. For a long time, space was the special preserve of just a very few countries. Access to space was very costly, uh, and but now the economics of space have completely changed and um, uh, opened up and up both new opportunities, but then also new challenges and even potential threats. Uh, space in, has been... It's so finely embedded in everyday life, people are largely unaware of it. Uh, but when you think about any time you use a GPS device or, or um, uh, in a lot of banking transactions, it involves indirectly space. And um, we are confronting a situation where, to, to use some of uh, Carla's language, space is competitive, congested, uh it it's uh, it's problematic uh there are a number of challenges that we face in the area of what we talk about nuclear entanglement that is where typically we we've co- we of course hope to avoid conflict with any country but uh if a conflict occurs the one thing that virtually everybody agrees is you don't want it to go out of the conventional conflict uh, domain and into nuclear conflict, and yet there are some space systems that um, that are part of our of our nuclear communication systems, uh, which sometimes can be used for uh, for purely non nuclear conventional purposes. And yet, should that happen, the uh, the Chinese have said to us that they would consider those. Those uh, satellites that support this uh, uh, conventional conflict to be legitimate targets for China to go after if they're being used to support a, a U.S. conventional conflict with China. Wow. And yet, and yet the policy on there is that, uh, uh, is that if there's an attack on our, on the U.S. nuclear infrastructure, yeah, communications infrastructure, it would be considered the same as an attack on our nu- nuclear 
forces, and that could precipitate a nuclear war. So just to jump in and, and, and sticking with you, um, Professor McDonald, uh, one of the things yeah. we've obviously seen in the past week is the anniversary of uh, the war in Ukraine um, and Putin's comments concerning uh, nuclear arsenals and just the proliferation, the withdrawal or suspension, more specifically, of START. Right. Um, how mm-hmm. does those comments play into the psyche of the US, but also China? We had a conversation about this with some uh, nuclear colleagues last week in a sort of impromptu reaction space to to Putin's speech. Um, you know, China's got a pretty different nuclear doctrine, minimal deterrence, at least for the time being, relative to the US and Russia. So how do you see those comments playing into the Chinese psyche uh, when it comes to uh, space uh, and, and to some of the other comments that you made just now? Well, uh, it's interesting because for a long time, China has had what's considered sort of a minimum deterrence policy. And yet, as the uh, the defense, U.S. and defense intelligence agencies pointed out, China's had an about face in the last couple of years, and they now seem to be going for a much larger nuclear arsenal, which is very concerning. At the um, Russia, and in particular with Ukraine, and there's so much interest, understandably, in Ukraine, the uh, Vladimir Putin has rattled his nuclear sabers as if saying, to, threatening to potentially use nuclear weapons in the conflict. And yet, um, less than a year ago, all five nuclear powers, uh, official nuclear powers, uh, said that uh, a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. And uh, so it is quite concerning that uh, that uh, Russia appears to be at least not ruling out the use of nuclear weapons, which is a horrendous situation. The kind of devastation from a, a, a nuclear war would make the, all the terrible devastation in Ukraine look minor in comparison. So uh, there ought to be a common interest in wanting to take steps to avoid to avoid the the in any possibility of escalation into a nuclear conflict and uh, the russia's steps uh, ought to be very concerning to china china has spoken about the um the the terrible possibility of nuclear conflict and they had as you alluded to in the past anyway they've always stressed that they only wanted to have a a minimum deterrent they now seem to be moving beyond that but the, but it would be a disaster for the world if the New START treaty or something mm. comparable could not survive uh, and, and be preserved and honored. So I just want to come over to you, uh, Professor Freeman, um, if, uh, Bruce, you wouldn't mind just uh, muting on your phone. Uh, yes, of course. Um, but Professor Freeman, uh, firstly, I don't know if you have any thoughts uh, coupled to what uh, Professor McDonald just said. But, you know, uh, given the events around the balloon and this rather interesting set of, um, I don't know, intelligence gathering efforts that the uh, the Americans are, you know, suspecting about the Chinese. What I do want to point out for listeners, actually, which I didn't really know what was really interesting, is that the balloon was actually, I believe, above 40,000 feet, but below 60,000, which is near space, if I'm getting that right. And there's no actual international law that governs this area. So there was sort of there's some gray area here in terms of this this methods used by the PLA 
uh, in this uh, with the balloon. And I was just wondering if if you think that that plays into uh, any of 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 China's uh, I don't know decision, strategical decision making concerning space more broadly, or is it they're not really related, and we shouldn't sort of conflate the two? Well, this is a, an area I definitely don't know very much about, but I I do I know that near space is the target of, of for the Chinese military of development. So it's it's actually an, a zone of 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 space that uh, many militaries are looking at because it's fairly close. Uh, it is uh, it is it is still uh, space. It's not sovereign. Uh, sovereign airspace. And there's a lot that you can do in that area uh, of space that uh, we, uh, it's, it's, I think, where, where, where missiles travel through and all of that sort of thing, too, in, in some cases, and Bruce can correct me there. But the Chinese have had an active near space uh, program for a while. Uh, and it and uh, and it's part of I think under the control of their strategic support forces, which were established with China's uh, military reforms in 2015. Uh, so we suddenly see a lot of new uh, space activities near space, cis lunar space uh, that the Chinese are engaged in. Now, as for the balloon itself, I mean that's an interesting interesting question. You know, it it uh, it it was floating around, uh, gathering data that presumably China, with its its uh, sophisticated satellite networks, could get that way. But there are some technical advantages to a balloon, and I think it can hover and get, collect data more slowly. Satellites, of course. Are of course uh, orbit, and so aren't fi- in a fixed position. And balloons can do things like uh, take different, you know, longer time uh, sequence photos and that sort of thing, or images. Sorry, not photos, images of 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 uh, sensitive areas. Uh, but you know, I've 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 written elsewhere that I, as far as the balloon's appearance over Montana right before uh, Blinken's visit to China, that that's probably uh, a a feature and a, a, a an outcome of China's uh, very uh, complicated uh, bureaucratic system and the challenge that there is around coordination issues in that system. And uh, it was it's not that the program wasn't authorized at the central and highest, highest level by Xi Jinping himself. But, you know, certainly I don't think it was a deliberate. Uh, de- the timing was not deliberate by the Chinese um, I, I'm not sure what we've what we've actually found out about uh, what the Chinese might have collected with the balloon. Uh, but uh, again, uh, I'll turn it over perhaps to Bruce to, to comment on that. Uh, and also the uses of near space, which I'm sure he's been following uh, for a while. How do you see the um, element of, uh, you know, uh, near space? And particularly, I'd like to hear you break down a little bit more the, the entanglement uh, element of this. I, it's not something I think a lot of people realize is that we're literally running out of space in space or near space to look because of the debris and low orbiting satellites. And generally also, uh, as Professor Car- uh, Freeman has, has mentioned, uh, the, uh, you know, the use of um, private sector, you know, or, um, you know, Starlink and things like this, which operate very differently uh, in the area. So I was just wondering if you could unpack that a little bit more. Well, just a, a comment or two about the um, uh, the the balloons. Uh, I would just say the key thing to understand is that above about a hundred kilometers, space is sort of like the ocean, uh, where there it's roughly the dividing line between where their national sovereignty ends and a global commons begins, and so. Um, 
with a with a satellite, which is the, even the lowest altitude satellites are at about uh, two hundred kilometers or so. Um, that's uh, that's not a problem, but with a balloon that's in the the atmosphere, that is a violation of national sovereignty. If you fly a balloon uh, into uh, a country's uh, um, uh, uh, atmosphere or space, so I just w- encourage people, including our Chinese friends, to, to imagine how China would have reacted if the roles were reversed. And the United States was sending balloons uh, over China. There'd be quite a bit of concern, I think, on the part of the Chinese. And, it, and indeed, it was a violation of our national sovereignty. And we were certainly within our rights to uh, to shoot it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, far as, as far as the larger question goes about numbers of satellites, it's important to put this in into uh, uh, context. Uh, just uh, 13 years ago. There were roughly about a thousand functioning satellites uh, in low Earth orbit uh, around going around uh, uh, the world, and that number today stands at about uh, over six thousand satellites. Wow! In in twenty twenty three, oh, but hold on to your seat. By twenty thirty, <laughs> that number is expected to be. If you're ready for this, fifty eight thousand. Wait, so wait, hang on. it's 6,000 at the moment. It'll be 58,000. Yep. And still going higher. And for and there's a variety, it has to do with the economics of space and also a little bit from a national security perspective. But uh, right now, the, the tentative plans on the books in terms of these constellations of satellites, a figure for going maybe another 10 or 15 years further out is over 500,000 satellites. The, can you imagine, you think traffic in midtown Manhattan is bad. Uh, the opportunities for collisions of these things. Just to jump in on this very quickly, um, I've just muted yes, you, Professor, but I just wanted to, to, I mean, we talk about the Dyson sphere, right? Or the Dyson, this concept of far right, you know, obtaining information from the sun, not information, energy. Uh, we, we're sort of, we, we, we're, we're enclosing ourselves on a, in our, our own cage sort of thing, right? Or was that a bit of a ridiculous uh, sort of metaphor? Well, there are a number of metaphors that you could uh, uh, used to describe it Sorry, uh, is to, <laughs> uh, to recognize that individually it's it's almost like a, a space environmental problem. Individually, mm. there could be good reasons for wanting to have lots of numbers of satellites, but if everybody uh, again, like it's like an environmental problem, if everybody is only looking out for themselves, you can have a situation where you've got serious overpopulation. And in the context of a strategic uh, rivalry between China and the United States, uh, it's not too hard to imagine uh, a situations where purely unintentional accident could be misinterpreted in a crisis situation as being an intentional, uh, an intentional action to destroy somebody else's satellite. You know, there's the the classic comment about 
in in the United States about Murphy's Law, which says that anything that can possibly go wrong will go wrong. And of course, and at the most inopportune time, and you would, uh, our concerns about stability and instability in space is that in a normal peacetime environment, there are little glitches that happen all the time. But in a crisis environment, it would be very easy to misinterpret them, like China intended to do that, or mm. gee, the United States intended to ram into our, our very valuable satellite, and it could spark rounds of escalation and continued escalation. It's a, it could be a very unstable situation. And uh, no one would benefit from that. Uh, and what we need to have is some kind of interaction. China and the United States are not going to agree on very many things. But um, as somebody once pointed out, debris, space debris, space junk has no ideology. It'll smack into anything. And it would be very easy for a, a um, what is said is a purely accidental situation to be misinterpreted. And there's and we China and the United States will disagree on much, but there are ought to be there are overlapping problems that it would be useful to establish a dialogue at least to address those problems, uh, even though we could disagree on many other things. Um, and. Uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, the question of overcrowding and uh, uncontrolled growth in in uh, satellite numbers uh, was one of the three things uh, issues that our uh, advisory panel on this study uh, called out is worthy of of additional of additional uh, investigation and and cooperation or at least engagement with China on 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 the that issue so thank you very much professor for that expansive answer i'm just going to remind you if you could just mute yourself thank you very much but uh professor freeman uh, turning to you i just want to ask a little bit more about specifically china put it this way so what i think is quite disconcerting is that as far as i can tell the american military tried to get in touch with chinese about the um the balloon and generally the sort of the espionage, the covert ops, sort of psyops, whatever you want to call it, that they, they were doing. Um, but as far as I can understand, there was no response. And this is because the CCP and the way that the PLA are constructed, it's it's much of one of the same. You can't take or make a phone call on the hotline, so to speak, uh, 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 unless you get, um, you know, um, a, you know, a, uh, you know, verification, not verification. Why can't I think today? Uh, unless you get allowance or, you know, permission. Thank you. Permission, brain, for coming up with the right word, funding. <laughs> permission from the CCP to do so. Uh, so could you take us through a little bit how that works or like how the Chinese power structure influences this? Um, but second, also, I'm also interested in the US chips bill. Uh, because obviously okay. the access to the semiconductors and the uh, recent agreement by the Dutch and the Japanese, I believe, to do something similar, uh, I think it's going to play into China's ability or uh, capacity to develop uh, relevant technology. So two slightly disjointed questions, but I'm very curious for your thoughts on those. Well, the first question on crisis communications is a really critical one. Uh, and uh, they really don't function between the United States and China. There is actually, uh, at least uh, during the second Obama administration, there was a a space hotline agreement between the two countries set up, but I don't think it functions. And uh, 
Uh, there are a lot of explanations. The bureaucratic politics explanation that you just alluded to is certainly one that uh, I, th- I think is important. Uh, you, a, a, a junior level person can't uh, answer uh, the phone uh, and, and junior level could be a, really quite a senior level person unless uh, they, they have guidance uh, from uh, the very top of the political hierarchy in China. Uh, so that's absolutely the case. Uh, but I think there, there are other reasons too uh, that, you know, as we learn more about this, there are crises that the United States considers a crisis that China doesn't consider a crisis. Uh, this might have fallen into that that category, uh, for example. Uh, or uh, this uh, this could reflect uh, the coordination issue inside China, where the maybe the top leader wasn't as aware of of this happening, and it took some time for the news to to get to get to get to them. Uh, and then there's a whole question of. Of the United States is always calling for guardrails uh, and uh, mm. and and for uh, you know uh, the, to be able to establish a a uh, a, a ceiling or a, 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 a sorry I'm forgetting the the term that we're using but uh, a, a bottom line in the in the in the relationship and and uh, many Chinese will say well that just if you have guardrails you can just drive that much faster uh, it it is basically allows you to push right up to the edge of crisis rather than moderating the opportunities for crisis so there yeah. there's a lot of work that needs to be done between the US and China now that we are really in a face off situation about how to manage our crises and i think we look to the cold war where the uh, US and Soviet Union had worked out uh, some uh, ways of of addressing uh, crises and and really want to see that See that kind of thing happening with the Chinese, but uh, we we haven't we haven't gone very far in in being able to do that uh, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, it's it's very d- dangerous because, as Bruce said, you have a situation where there are just enormous uh, opportunities in space now, and they are just going to keep growing, uh, you know, immediately uh, for these kinds of crises to emerge. And you also uh, have this in in uh, in in the uh, these uh, fraught waters uh, where the United States and China are all uh, move, spinning around, moving around, moving boats around, and and operating in the in the uh, in the South China Sea, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can think of a lot of other places where the United States and China are are operating, where uh, there could be misinterpreted behaviors or actual. Uh, accidents that could uh, trigger uh, trigger conflict. So this is an area we really need to, to work on. Uh, as far as the CHIPS Act go, uh, goes, this is uh, not, this is a new area of research for me, but I mean, one of the, one of the issues uh, I've been, you know, I've, I've been looking a little bit at, at uh, not more than a little bit, I've been looking at the Taiwan issue. Obviously, China, Taiwan is the, is the place where, uh, where all these important chips are manufactured, and I've been wondering about how uh, the the, uh, the the weakness in in uh, the U.S. industrial uh, system capability to produce uh, advanced chips, how that will impact our uh, space program, uh, because uh, we're you know we're in a situation where we are amping up our own. Uh, our own space uh, program, both civilian and uh, military, uh, to compete with China and then maintain our superiority in space more broadly. And uh, there's a real vulnerability. Uh, so the CHIPS Act, I think, uh, helps, uh, is, is clearly geared to, to doing that, but we're 
to uh, we have some some serious weaknesses are in our infrastructure, including just not the number of engineers and and, kind, and kinds of skilled types of skilled workers to to do uh, uh, industrial workers to produce these chips. So we have a lo- we have a long way to go. It affects space. It affects basically the entire economy. So, uh, but but space. Since we're talking about space today, I'll focus on that. And do not forget to engage with us on social media. And if you appreciate the content, to support us at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit. So just to follow up on that, then, um, I think what's also very curious, and I'd love your take on a little bit, you've mentioned Taiwan uh, as one element within the South China Sea, but we've also got North Korea. Um, and they've been launching, I think I read somewhere that it's they've launched more uh, ICBMs in the past couple of months than they did in the fire and fury period of Donald Trump. Um, but equally now, I was reading uh, another article that's reading today um, about the South Korean population's attitude towards nuclear armament. And there is quite a sizable population that are open to that idea. Now, I know this doesn't directly play into space necessarily, but given we started and mentioned ICBM's nuclear proliferation, and, and this is something I'd, I'd be curious for Professor McDonald's thoughts on as well. How do you see the, the dynamics in China's near abroad uh, and the tensions playing into its, you know, approach towards its space programs in general? You know, how do you see them all playing into one another, basically? Yeah, no, it it absolutely does. Uh, I'll let uh, Bruce talk about the non-proliferation regime because he he's much more expert. But in terms of of the the China factor in proliferation, the news that China is expanding its nuclear arsenal has raised uh, a lot of uh, of questions uh, from uh, countries that, like South Korea, that gave up their nuclear program in the early 1990s. And of course, as you uh, correctly pointed out, uh, you know, North Korea is bolstering and rapidly expanding its its uh, nuclear capabilities. So that's very worrisome. Uh, and there is a sense uh, that the nuclear non-proliferation regime is collapsing. And uh, and so uh, in that in that situation where you have uh, nuclear armed powers on your doorstep, putting pressure on you, uh, countries that have uh, issued uh, nuclear programs, whether it's South Korea or Japan, are starting to give more serious consideration once again to uh, to the idea. Uh, so we're in a in a, a situation where you already have a nuclear armed uh, Pakistan, India, Russia. North Korea on China's borders, uh, you could well have other countries, con- you know, at least uh, uh, moving more closely to nuclear capability in its in its in its uh, in immediate region. So that's uh, a very tense situation, and uh, a couple of those countries, of course, are U.S. allies, uh, and uh, that has implications for uh, for our alliance as well, where we have historically provided the nuclear umbrella. Um, but yeah, so what are your thoughts on the um, nuclear uh, element that uh, Professor Freeman has mentioned? And what do you think about the, um, you know, uh, moving forward? Uh, you both state the mention of a, of a coordination mechanism or trying to be more constructive in how the Chinese and Americans can, well, find common ground. Don't use the word cooperate, I think that's a bit <laughs> optimistic uh, in in this uh, in this area. You know, we, we've seen the joint statement in, over climate change, but China seems to be inconsistent with what it says and what it does. So, just wondering if you could break down some of your thoughts on on those two points. Well, <clears throat> there's a, a couple of concerns that I have. One is that 
China has clearly made a decision to be more of a major strategic nuclear power than it has been in the past. And I think that uh, that's a matter of great concern. Uh, China used to make a pretty strong case to say that uh, they had no interest in getting involved in an arms race and going up to the ridiculous numbers of nuclear weapons that the United States and, and Russia or the Soviet Union had. And yet now they are falling into that same trap. And I, th- I think that uh, that the, that they want to be seen as an equal in power with the United States, if not superior. And so it appears to be a um, a merit badge that you need, in order to be taken seriously, it needs a larger nuclear force, which is most unfortunate because they used to make a pretty eloquent case for why they didn't need to do that. And now um, they had been saying that they'd be willing to join in nuclear arms negotiations with the United States and Russia, but that once Russia and uh, the U.S. went through one more round of reductions, then they would join in the discussions. Uh, now, they not only seem to be wanting to be participate, they want to participate uh, right now as an equal, and yet they also, at the same time, are playing hard to get. Uh, they they're not engaging on wanting to, to set up a mechanism where we can hash these issues out. Uh, which is most unfortunate. And uh, the whole situation in Korea does not help matters any. Uh, China was supposed to have had a lot of influence over North Korea, but it appears to uh, be in their strategic interest to let uh, North Korea's behavior worry the United States and South Korea. And of course, this is the direction this is going in. The South Koreans have have expressed interest much more than they did in the past in having either their own nuclear deterrent or inviting the United States to come back in onto the Korean peninsula with tactical nuclear weapons, which the United States used to base a station there quite a number of years ago. Uh, this is a real reversal for nuclear arms control, and um, uh, it does not, frankly, it shows, in my view, uh, a certain um, bad judgment on China's part. And like, and getting back to the space regime, we've tried for some time now to reestablish dialogue on space, but the Chinese have been playing hard to get, and they don't seem to want to engage with us. Uh, and uh, now this is most unfortunate. Uh, it's uh, it's a worrisome trend in the uh, short term direction of um, of U.S. Chinese relationships. And what of your uh, suggestions for moving forward? Um, you know, working on some a coordination mechanism. I know that it's of interest uh, to the Biden administration, but uh, there doesn't seem to be any comparable interest. On the Chinese side, which I view as uh, is very worrisome and most unfortunate, I think it is uh, to use a phrase that the Chinese like to use a lot. This is an area where there can be win-win, where both sides can be better off if we can have some engagement in in, in dialogue. 
uh, strategic stability talks, things where China can air their concerns and we can air ours, uh, this would be a very helpful step forward. Uh, but uh, they seem to be uh, full of themselves. Uh, just the fact that they haven't been more forthcoming on the question of Ukraine. This should should be an easy answer for for China, but maybe it's related to their whatever their planning is for Taiwan. It used to be the Chinese would say, "Well, yes, we think Taiwan should uh, rejoin, be become part of China again, but we're in no we're we're in, we're in no hurry." And if it happens a hundred years from now, that'll be okay. But now it doesn't sound like they want to wait a hundred years or not even 50 years. So um, uh, it's a very worrisome situation. And that's why uh, we become concerned about, about um, the the whole possibility of stability or instability. And there, this is what part of the reason for our study. Uh, if I can plug my, the Foreign Policy Institute did this uh, uh, book uh, on crisis stability uh, in space, which came out um, uh, in the um, uh, in in last October, mm-hmm. uh, talking about the real challenges and threats of instability in space and elsewhere. Very good. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Professor McDonald. Uh, Professor uh, Freeman, do you have anything you'd like to add uh, to uh, the professor's comments um, concerning, uh, you know? potential for cooperation, if any at all? Um, or are you just looking at a pretty pessimistic um, future and my British cynicism is, is well justified? <laughs> um, probably your British cynicism is well justified. But we we have, I think we have uh, in our report been uh, very uh, realistic about what is possible and have uh, recommended uh, initial moves that are you know that are that are taken by each country separately uh, in a in a positive direction in the in the case of uh, nuclear entanglement we've recommended that the, that the United States uh, disentangle uh, its nuclear and conventional satellite architecture architecture so that uh, that it, that reduces the opportunity for uh, the kind of uh, nuclear uh, trigger that Bruce described earlier and uh, on the uh, mega constellation satellites uh, we've also recommended that uh, the that the two countries undertake research perhaps together uh, to better understand their impacts and then help that would that would feed into the design of some kind of improved governance structure. On the direct ascent ASAT testing, uh, that is some, that's an area where there could be some really good diplomacy, but, uh, al- already the United States has, uh, has, uh, itself, uh, taken the step of saying that it would no longer take, uh, uh do undertake, uh, uh, debris generating uh, anti-satellite testing and a, a lot of other countries have come on board and there was even a vote at the UN which uh, where a lot of countries endorsed uh, this this uh, this norm uh, not a treaty but at least an agreement uh, China did not sign on to that but maybe with some diplomacy and uh, support from other countries around the world we could see some progress in that direction um, you know, uh, to Bruce's point, though, you know that we are hampered uh, in uh, in our in our efforts to co- cooperate, even uh, by willingness on on China's side, but also some some laws on our own side. 
uh, mm-hmm. the Wolf Amendment, uh, which was passed some years ago uh, because of, of concerns that technical information uh, by Chinese, by American commercial satellite manufacturers to, uh, to China uh, were getting uh, perhaps being used by uh, Chinese ICBM missile uh, uh, development. Uh, that we have this amendment that makes it impossible for NASA to engage uh, with the, the uh, Chinese uh, in space on civilian space. Of course, the China's China doesn't have a civilian space program. Uh, all of it's run by the military, so that compounds the challenge. So we also have two systems that don't uh, perfectly align. But all of this is just screaming for some diplomacy. Uh, some good diplomacy, and uh, and the United States and China should also both support international efforts to make headway on all of these issues. I mean, screaming in diplomacy, <laughs> a bit of a juxtaposition in my mind. <laughs> but I'm curious just for two uh, thoughts from you, Professor Freeman, which is one, uh, what does this do for Chinese relations with other countries that have their own space interests, particularly we've touched upon Russia, but also India? The two countries are not exactly best mates currently, but also in the multilateral sector. Uh, you know, China continues, regardless of what people said. We had Richard Goen of Crisis Group on the um, uh, on the show previously, and he told me that the Chinese are very active in uh, in the UN Security Council, uh, despite what people may think about China or other countries. You know, beliefs in the UN as a relevant organization these days. What do you, do you have any insights there or any thoughts about what the Chinese, you know? could approach other countries with similar interests, not just the U.S., but also the multilateral end? Yes, well, China has uh, been uh, using its space technology for space diplomacy very effectively. It's a major source of space launches for many developing countries, some of which have their own uh, space uh, ambitions, and uh, China has been engaging with them. Of course, it's now uh, got its Beidou uh, satellite system, which is tied to its its space Silk Road, uh, part of the BRI. All of this plays into uh, showcasing China as a leader in space, and uh, and it it also countries both are hooked in by some of this technology to supporting China uh, and and its preferences uh, in outer space. Uh, But uh, it also means many of them have their own ambitions for, as you said, India, for example, uh, in space, and they are going to want to be able to use this outer space commons before we have a tragedy of the commons in space. So there are opportunities. I think about climate change and China standing on the side of developing countries in that conversation and uh, globally and, and small island developing countries said, Hey, wait a minute, you know, you need to do more. Uh, You can't just uh, say we're a developing country and we're not subject to restricting our emissions. So I think in outer space, uh, the developing country constituency, very important for China on the world stage, has also aspiring space powers, may have a lot to say and may be influential in, uh, in, uh, in pushing China in some directions that would be of benefit to us all. Great. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Freeman and Professor McDonald for joining us. Uh, it's been a great conversation. Um, I'm jealous of uh, Professor McDonald's background. I have to say mine's a little bit glary. Um, but I'm looking forward to the future events that we have coming up. The report for this conversation um, that the, the uh, two academics, uh, two scholars released will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed the conversation, give it a thumbs up, give it a subscribe uh, if you appreciate it. Um, and do check out the uh, Science from Policy Institute's work as well. That'll be also in the description. Uh, I've been Piotr, and this is The Global Gambit. Take care. You were listening to The Global Gambit. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe and leave us a review. We would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it. Doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content. Want to support us further? Do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit, where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at the global gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests? Get in touch at theglobalgambit at gmail.com and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host Piotr. But until next time, this is The Global Gambit.